The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Once again, I just want to welcome you guys to TBC. Uh, and just as a reminder, I'm going to leave this backpack right in front of the podium uh, so you guys can remember to go online, support this outreach. It's over 200 uh, kids that we are sponsoring for backpacks this year. Also, in case uh, you just had your face in your phone when you walked through the lobby, you might have missed the big Christmas tree out there. And last hour, I was looking around and some were like, well, a Christmas tree? Yeah, it's huge. You can't miss it. Uh, so when you go out these doors, uh, look for the Christmas tree. It's Christmas in July for Foster Love, and Foster Love has some tags where you can go support, and it's one of their big fundraising uh, events of the year, so go check that out, supporting all that Foster Love does in our community. So we're continuing in the Sermon on the Mount today, uh, heading toward the end and uh, looking at Matthew chapter 7, and uh, we are on the question, to judge or not to judge? So that is the question, right? To judge or not to judge. Last week we looked at the command not to be anxious. Jesus' next topic here deals with judging others. But on the surface, you think anxiety and judgment, they don't really seem to go together. They're not really connected. They seem like separate issues. But the reality is that They're not separate at all. In order to overcome our anxiety, we often look for things to distract us and help us cope. And so I believe that focusing on others and their issues are a great way that we choose to get off of the anxiety that we have. We get to point out other people's faults and maybe create anxiety in them as well uh, because of how we're dealing with it in an unhealthy way. So as we begin our time together, I think it's important to get this out of the way uh, right away, is that we all are guilty of judgment, right? We all judge others. It could be, you know, a young mom who's judging someone else on what diapers they choose. It could be uh, a parent who has kids going off to school and maybe they choose homeschool or they choose private school or they choose Christian school and act like that's the end-all decision for every kid in America. And so there's lots of ways we judge. It could be, wow, we even judge when we walk in this room, we sit in these padded seats like, oh, she's wearing that today? Okay. So there's lots of things that we do in judgment. It's just, unfortunately, in some ways, a natural thing. If you think anything like me, you listen to teaching, and even in your judgment, you say something like, oh, man, I wish she were here today. Or I hope he's listening. Or I can't wait to send this link to so-and-so. They really need to hear this one. So we all judge. See, we're naturally wired to judge others, and just like most things we're naturally wired to do, they can quickly and easily become sin. So just because I'm naturally wired to do this doesn't mean it's okay. It actually is a warning sign to say, hey, I might want to pump the brakes here because it can easily become sin. So let's look at verse one and two of chapter seven. Jesus says here, judge not that you be not judged. For the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. So you will be judged the same way you judge others. So we need to acknowledge that uh, these words are some of the most misunderstood words in this sermon. 
when it comes to this statement, judge not that you be not judged, uh, a lot of people will make statements like, only God can judge me, or you know, someone like Tupac, you know, that was like the title of his album. Only God can judge me, or some people get tattoos of it because it's like, hey, back off. I do me, you do you, and it's good, right? In reality, that's not how it's designed in Scripture. So taking this attitude from this verse shows we don't really understand this passage or the whole of Scripture. But oftentimes we can kind of get focused on that where, well, it's okay for me to judge in certain situations, and we miss what he's trying to get at here, which is the fact that we judge in an unhealthy way, in a vindictive way, in an angry way, and to really deflect any kind of criticism off of ourselves. And so, yes, there are things that say that, but it's important for us to see overall when an unbeliever rejects God's judgment on his life, he in turn rejects the opportunity to have God as a loving father. We have to see that God is both father and judge. So before we get into our relationship with others, we have to see, first of all, that we have a relationship with one who is a father and judge. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. For the believer, the knowledge that God is father transforms his view of him as judge, and the knowledge that he is judge fills him with awe that such a God is also his father. So the ultimate one who can judge and will judge is God himself. And we have been given the opportunity to have him as our father. And he is the ultimate judge, but he's also the ultimate father. Having one without the other isn't really having God as your father at all. So let's take a minute to think about judging. Maybe some of you can relate to some of these memes that my wife sends me at times on Instagram Messenger. Uh, and now I want to very uh, point out very clearly, she sends them to me. These aren't ones I found to roast her, okay? These are ones she sent to me. So the first one being uh, when you notice your wife deep cleaning and realize she hasn't said a word to you in a while and you just sit there. I was watching Alone the other day, Alone, amazing show, uh, and I'm just sitting there and I hear things happen and I do notice the dishwasher um, being loaded and she's doing some laundry and I just feel some stares in the back of my head like, you really just gonna sit there? I mean, just keep going, okay, buddy. Uh, And then the next one, my wife, when she puts her phone down and sees that I'm still on mine. Uh, I don't know if you know this rule, guys, just because both of you are on your phones and she's done, that means you're done, apparently. So just to avoid judgment, you're going to get the stare acting like she was never on it in the room, although she was probably on it before you got on it. Just follow that rule and you might have some more success in your marriage. So we come to this idea of judging. You might be thinking, Tim, well, what is Jesus saying if he isn't making a sweeping statement like it seems like he's saying? that no one can judge another person. What we first need to understand is that we have a limited view and working understanding of the word to judge, right? Because what we do when we look at this word is uh, in our society more than ever, we're fixated on the fact that you can't judge me because to judge is instantly to condemn. And there's nothing else with it. It's just straight condemnation. You know, I'm pointing this out to you and I'm judging you, condemning you all at once. 
Which, yes, that's what Jesus is saying. Judge not, (laughs) that you be not judged. Because you're making these sweeping statements and this idea that it's all about condemnation. It made me think of uh, this gavel uh, that is in my son's room. So we have a nine-year-old boy named Owen, and we got him, uh, he, he arrived uh, on our doorstep. We were in foster care, a week old, he comes to us, and uh, we were able to adopt him right before he turned two, which is actually what birthed foster love and all that ministry was straight out of foster care. And so for us, Uh, when we went to the courthouse on adoption day, every kid receives this. And there he is getting his gavel that day and uh, he gets this gift and we keep it in his room to remind him about uh, his adoption, right? And so he gets this thing and it's there and he knows it's there and he's used it as a prop here and there uh, in our house. He's a hilarious kid, uh, just so funny and we're down, sitting down to dinner, and uh, one day we're sitting there, and apparently he didn't like what was going on, so he sometimes he randomly will get up and, I mean, dance in the kitchen, you name it, he just does his thing. And so him getting up, didn't, didn't think anything of it, but he comes back into the kitchen or where we're eating, and he has this in his hand. And he stands at the end of the table with all five of us sitting down trying to eat our dinner and starts just pounding on the table judgment against each one of us. Kendall had her elbows on the table. Like usual, I won't be quiet and let him talk. You know, all these different things. Bam, he's just a bam. Judgment, judgment. He's holding this gavel. And he's acting literally like a judge just passing it out. And it made me think of actually a quote I heard from a sermon this week. He said, you know, especially relating to social media judgment, that we literally all uh, walk around uh, with a gavel in our hand and ready to pass it out. Judgment. Bam. Oh, she said, what? Bam. He did what? Oh, no. Bam. And we're just judging all the time. It's like we're literally just carrying this around. And anytime we want, we're just hitting, hitting that gavel with judgment. And so for us, we need to get a better understanding of this Greek word that's used for judge is krino. It's used here in this passage as a wider understanding of what a judge is called to do, which is to listen, perceive, and decide. So a judge isn't just hearing the case and bam, throwing his gavel down. Before he, ca- he, he brings about judgment, he's listening, he's perceiving, and then he's deciding what is just. Jonathan Pennington states, this then distorts our sense of what justice is about. It's not just condemnation for the bad, but restoration of what is right. So yes, you have a green light as a Christian in community to be able to judge somebody, but you have to be careful because you need to think through what does it really mean to judge and what it really means to judge is first of all to listen, which often we probably don't in the situation. We're just ready to pick this up. To have perception on what the person is going through at the time and have a spiritual understanding of what to do next and oftentimes we're gonna see later that what to do next is just keep our mouth shut. And so for us, we need to think through, hey, what is Jesus saying here? And due to our current culture and climate and how we take this word just strictly negative, we need to understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't judge unfairly. 
Because that's what was happening. When he was talking to the Pharisees and even talking to some of his own followers, what was happening is an unfair judgment because all it was was negative condemnation. R.T. Franz puts it this way, the down-to-earth issue of unfairly critical attitudes to others, which combined with a naive lack of self-criticism, threatened to disrupt a close-knit community such as that of Jesus' first disciples. So even then, as Jesus is talking, this threat of judgment is, is fracturing this small group of believers to the point that it could tear it apart. And so it threatens us, the TBC community. It threatens us, this quick-to-judge attitude threatens this local community that exists to give glory to God, that exists to point others to Jesus, that exists to love others even in their mess. But instead, all we do is judge and we give a testimony to the world around us that Jesus really isn't worth following. They can just do that without Jesus, right? So he gets into measuring as well at the end of verse two. With a measure you use, it will be measured to you. This concept is common in ancient Israelite literature. You know the story of uh, Samson who lost uh, his eyes. Well, he lost his eyes and it was this measured uh, giving out of judgment because he was lustful with his eyes. And then a man named Absalom who was fascinated with his hair. He just thought his hair was the most amazing thing on the planet. And guess what? He got hung from his hair and died. So there's this measurement here, these equal measurements, and the idea here relates to judgment, the fact that it encourages a fair evaluation of others with the understanding that you will be measured in the same way. Oftentimes we have such an imbalance in our measurement of others compared to ourselves and we see them as needing this much judgment and us somehow get diminished and we're kind of good and we're all right where we're at. And he's saying, no, you have to have a balanced measure of how you see yourself and others. So he gets into verse three and four. He says, you're addressing a speck in others while ignoring a log in your own eye. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? See, it's interesting to note Jesus' fascination with the human eye. Two weeks ago, I was up here talking about treasures and what we value, and I was talking about how Jesus pointed out that valuing what the world has to offer is like having a disease in your eyes that needs to be fixed and healed because we see these things that corrupt and, and that get corruption and, and that rust away and that the moth eats, that they just fade away and we need an eye healing. And in the same way, he's using the eye again to identify large and small eye obstructions. Maybe we can think of it this way. You know, we use filters a lot, right? On social media and things like that, on our phones. Sometimes those filters are just to make us laugh, you know, where they make us look like an animal or maybe they look, make us look like we're crying when we're really not. You know, these filters get after us. Uh, but sometimes we get them and we, we use them to make ourselves, to present ourselves as way better than we really look in person. So maybe like this picture, I would throw this one up on, and I see myself in Rwanda, a little sweaty and nasty, and, and so, hey, I need to fix this, and I don't know what happens, but the next picture pops up. This is what it looks like, you know? <laughs> That's me. We look so much alike, right? 
And so we use filters to try to help us kind of see ourselves in a better way, a, a different way, maybe not so many wrinkles or maybe not that one pimple that just happened to pop up that morning and we try to, try to uh, filter it out and we look at ourselves differently. So we take this attitude, right? We sit on a throne, we look down on others in judgment of anything and everything, but even in our manufactured facade of appearing to have it all together, deep down we know we're screwed up. We know we're messed up. But instead of dealing with it, we double down on judgment, because that's easier, right? Attempting to make our own issues seem far less ugly and obnoxious than someone else's, we gave ourselves a pass because at least we're not like him or her. In a sick, ironic way, we end up embracing and living out the pharisaical lifestyle that Jesus spoke out against, even in this sermon. We get our mind off the goal of pursuing the calling of Jesus on our lives that Paul lays out in Philippians 3, 12 to 14, and we ultimately become what he sadly describes in verse 18 as an enemy of the cross. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be called an enemy of the cross, and oftentimes my judgmental heart and my attitude literally makes me an enemy of the cross. Because what I put out there is not somebody who loves others and loves Jesus. So back in the day uh, when I was a freshman in college, I played basketball on this team. We were in upstate New York, and we would play up in the mountains, uh, in the Adirondack Mountains. We'd play junior colleges and Division three schools and even in prisons and all this different stuff. It was like a ministry as well as uh, just a fun sport that we played. And we had this uh, home game coming up, and I was real excited because rarely we had a home game, and I was going to be able to play in front of some friends and classmates. And so uh, I'm out there on the court. A teammate of mine makes a layup. And he makes a layup, and every other person that uh, knows basketball knows after you make a layup, you just go down the other end of the court, right? And so I'm kind of leaning into my turn, going up to the other end of the court, and for some dumb reason, the guy, one of the guys I was playing against was still jumping. I don't know if he's going to try to hit it back from out of the goal. I have no idea what he had in mind. But he lifted his knee right up under my face and caught my eyeball in my eye socket. And so I I put my hand up to my eye, and I'm like, oh, man, that thing hurt really bad, and I don't know what's going on. And my teammate comes up to me, and he goes, hey, Tim, you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm all right, you know, whatever. And, And then I go like this. And right after I let my hand off of that wound, it was just a waterfall of blood. And it just was coming down, and I was 45 minutes from the closest ER, and so I get a towel and uh, slap it up there, hold it together, and someone drives me to the ER. Fast forward, eight stitches later, I was fine, and got back over there. And my buddy, my teammate that asked me if I was okay, he's like, hey man, I thought your eyeball, eyeball like literally fell out. Like, I could not see it. It's just blood. And so, for some of you that are cringing and almost ready to pass out like my daughter would be, you know, you ask, like, why would I tell that story besides to wake you up and gross you out at the same time? There's a reason for it. Because when we look at this log in our own life, this, in our own eye, and this obstruction, it makes me think of this time where it's like, literally think about, it's like me if I would have reacted and the blood's coming down and I just keep playing. 
And I just go on with the game. The coach doesn't pull me out and I'm just going to the point I pass out from loss of blood and potentially die. It's kind of a morbid illustration, but it helps us see that's how we live. When we have this log in our eye and we continue just going on with life, living like it's okay, and ultimately brings death to our relationship with others, it brings death even potentially to our walk with Jesus because we just live with it. And maybe we need to take it more seriously, maybe even more deadly. We act as if everything's all right, but in reality, we have some major problems and issues that we need to deal with. So verse five goes on and says, hey, take the log out of your eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So how do we do this? Maybe some practical things that we can think about how to do this. Now one uh, is one that my wife has decided to do and I I just need to read her post from a few years ago. Uh, If anybody follows her, if you don't follow her, you might want to on social media because she's absolutely hilarious. She should write a book, but she would never say that herself. But this post kind of gives you some insight into what she deals with in her own head. She says, I know this will shock some of you, but I'm terribly impatient. I know, I know, I have flaws. To combat my lack of forbearance with check writers or people that use too many words, or those of you that insist on posting selfies, I realize this makes me a hater, not impatient, but whatever. I sometimes make up fake scenarios in my head. For example, people that turn a corner very slowly while I'm behind them. I pretend they have a large cake in the back of their car for their grandmother's 92nd birthday, and they don't want to tump it over. Yes, I said tump. It's a word. I actually Googled it. I made fun of her, but it is a word. Uh, This plan usually works out well. I don't want to spoil grandma's birthday. She's had a hard life, I tell myself, and her gout is terribly painful, which I realize doesn't make me sane, but I go with it. But today, I'm all out of caring about grandmas and their hard lives. Three people turn corners very slowly in a row, I might add, and I just couldn't take it anymore. I screamed, turn your daggum car. I don't care if she's turning 147. (laughs) Yes, I said daggum because I grew up in Beaumont. Sydney, our oldest daughter, sat in silence for two whole minutes before saying, I have no chance of being normal. She finishes with, uh, I felt sad that this just occurred to her. I was pretty sure this is something I made crystal clear over the past 12 years. <laughs> so you could take some uh, you know, helpful hints there to make up scenarios that might help you be less judgmental and impatient. But you could also move to scripture that might help you as well. First of all, you can ask the spirit to identify this plank or these multiple planks in your eye. This happens through the word of God. The psalmist points out in Psalm 119.30, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I've set my heart on your laws. As a result, we discover a true view of ourselves when we ask the Spirit to identify these planks. And when we see a true view of ourselves and how needy we are, and how horribly uh, deficient we are of, of just things that are acceptable to God because of our sin, then we really understand the fact that we have a lot of work to do between us and God. And it takes the time that we have away from judging others because we realize, hey, I need to be in the word more. I need to be fellowshipping with the spirit more so that I can actually address my own issues. 
so we rightfully address our own sins in this case. And then we confess those sins to God. Psalm 51.10, David says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. We ask him, God, do this work in me. Create this new heart in me that I can't do on my own. As we acknowledge and confess our sins, we develop an attitude of humility. Sinclair Ferguson also says to have strong feelings about the sins of others that are not matched by a ruthless dealing with our own sins is hypocrisy. There's a story, a parable that Jesus tells that illustrates this. In Luke chapter 18, in verse 9 to 14, he goes on to talk about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee and the tax collector were in the temple and they were in the, the synagogue and, and they're kind of off by themselves and here's the Pharisee and over here is the tax collector who is looked at as horribly evil back then. And the Pharisee, kind of to summarize some of the things he's saying is, I thank God that I'm not like those judgmental people. I thank God that I'm not like so-and-so or this guy or that guy and he's going on and on and even I'm not like that tax collector. I'm sure that he noticed in the corner of his eye. So he stands by himself in verse 11. He says, thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does Jesus say? I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exhausts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's the illustration. Jesus is trying to say, look, we all have issues. What we need to do is get on our knees and bow before God and say, God, I'm a sinner. I need to confess these things to you. And then we move on to embrace a new renewed lifestyle. 1 John 1, 7 and 9, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, as part of this new lifestyle, this renewed lifestyle, we actually can be determined to listen more than we speak. As James 1.19 says, know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone, every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So as we commit to this renewed lifestyle, it actually like naturally makes us not judge as much. Because this renewed lifestyle brings us to understand we have what? Two ears, right? One mouth, so we should listen at least twice as much. So as we listen and hear people's stories and actually inquire about what might make them make certain decisions, what might make them do certain things that we don't like, then we listen to them, then it actually helps us withhold judgment and instead show love and care and compassion. And so we live, next thing is to live as one who has been bought with a price in Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things in the earth. And then we look at the perfect law of liberty. It's James 1, 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in what he is doing. 
So we ask for the spirit to identify, right? We confess, we embrace a new lifestyle, we live as one bought with a price, and then we continually, every day, look at this law of liberty, the word of God, the mirror for our souls, and we see that we need a lot of work. And it helps us to not judge in such a harsh way. Now, verse six is an interesting one, and you might ask yourself after reading it, what is with the pigs and dogs? It says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Seems kind of random in this passage that Jesus puts that in there, but it's important for us to identify. Now, there are specific and general uh, interpretations of this passage, this verse. We'll stick with the general for time's sake. But Jesus is doing a contrast here between something that, some things that were vile, things that were like not even, you don't even touch or be around, which was dogs and pigs. I'm sorry for those that love their dog. I love my dog too. I, I just, I mean, he gets up on the couch with me, snuggles with me. But back then, he wouldn't have been welcome. He was one who ate garbage, one who was outside the city if someone was beaten because of judgment, licking wounds of people outside the city. Pigs, you definitely stayed away from them if you were a Jew. You didn't have anything to do with them, unclean animal. So here's the contrast to holy things and pearls that were of great value. So he's saying, here's the two things, don't have anything to do with them. And some people say, you know, a lot of different interpretations that are kind of off base, but I would say this, Jesus is encouraging believers not to waste their time on those Jews who refuse to believe the wisdom of the kingdom message as revealed in his encouragement later in Matthew 10, 14. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. So it's like Jesus is saying, look, I've come, I've shared this message with these Jewish leaders, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, I've, I've given the message, I've told them what's what, and here it is, they've heard it, and they continue in their hard hearts, and they continue on in their sin of rejection. As it doesn't mean they're too far gone to receive Jesus one day, no. But it does mean what he's saying to the believers is, hey, you've spent, we've spent enough time here. There's lots of other people who need to hear the message of the gospel, including the Gentiles and people who need to hear it. And those who continually reject it, then you are continually not necessarily wasting time because the message of the gospel can plant seeds for later. But there's so much more opportunity in people who need to hear, yet you're continuing to focus on one area. And he's saying, broaden your horizons in sharing the gospel, broaden your horizons in making uh, friends and having company and being able to see that sometimes the message just isn't for certain people. It's not for them because they've rejected it. And their heart is hard. And maybe one day that will be different. But for now, let's move on to what's next. And so we see in this sermon as we wrap it up that Jesus has influenced many, right? Sermon on the Mount has influenced many people over the years. Villagers, businessmen and women, fishermen in this society, people with varying physical ailments and disabilities, religious leaders, tax collectors, children, those with demon possession, and so many more. And one of those uh, individuals who was influenced by Jesus and his message in a profound way was somebody who wrote almost half the New Testament, Paul. 
And he lived his life out of a miraculous calling where he hated Christians and abused them and threw them in jail to the point where Jesus called him to himself. And so he lived out the upward call as he would describe it of God in Christ Jesus. So it's not just surpri- not surprising that Paul echoed Jesus' statement from Matthew 7, 1 in Romans 2, 1. He says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. So today I encourage you, I implore you to maybe consider a new way of thinking about and interacting with people. Adopt the attitude that Paul mentions a few verses later in verse four, that God has toward us and including kindness, forbearance, patience, knowing that the spirit of God can do the work through this to lead others to repentance. This is what he does. If someone is going to have a change of heart in the way they're acting, they're more likely to have a change of heart when someone comes to them in an understanding way, in a patient way, in a forgiving way, than if I grab this thing and beat him over the head with it, or grab this and beat him over the head with it. Now don't get me wrong, It's important to speak truth, and sometimes the truth hurts, and sometimes it will cause pain, absolutely. But if we take some time to understand people where they're at, and take some time to think, hey, maybe there's a reason why they're acting the way they are, and ask the Spirit to lead us before we jump to judgment, maybe there can be more opportunities for repentance. So for us, as we wrap it up, I really want us to consider these things. And I want this time as we sing this final song not to be a time to get a head start in the line for lunch. My stomach's growling too. But let this time be a time of confession, of repentance, of letting the Spirit work. Be like attending a game and like it's tied, the game is tied and you just leave. Now's not the time to go. Now's the time to really let the Spirit do the work and let the conviction happen from the Word of God and from the Spirit of God. So here's some things to think about. Although people's prideful judgment is definitely something for you to blow off, God's judgment on sin is to be taken very seriously. And He has offered His sacrifice. Maybe some of you need to receive it today. There will be a judgment. It's coming. And the Holy One of God must judge sin. But he's offered you a gift as a sacrifice that you can trust Jesus, confess your sin, and embrace him as your Savior. But for many of us in this room, including me, we need this time to confess our sin of judgment toward others. Whether it's a blatant calling out of others or maybe a, a, you know, a subtle passive-aggressive jab. It's all sin, and it all needs to be confessed. But not only confessing it to God, but scripturally, when we sin against others, it's important for us to make things right for those we've hurt and to restore fellowship with one another. 
I think we could all use some time and reflection to consider who we've harmed with our judgment and how we can make things right. So I'm going to pray. Go ahead and stand. And I'm going to pray. And after we pray, we're going to sing. And what I want you to do, I desire for you to do, is let this song be a time of conviction, a time where maybe you don't even sing the words. You just sit down or maybe you come forward and get on your knees and, and, and just confess where you've judged others. Maybe you need to go to somebody even now. Maybe a spouse you need to lean to, to and say, can we pray? Don't check out on me. Now's the time to let the Spirit do the work and convict. Let's pray, God, bring conviction. And where you bring conviction, help us to be bold in confession. Where we have confession, help us to have the energy and the courage to go on and make it right with others. Lord, during this time, help us to deal with that and with you and with others and our judgmental attitude. In your name we pray, amen.